a tremendous encouragement just to listen as you sing and uh, Randy as you lead us in prayer. What a blessing. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue on in Acts. So uh, if you've been with us, you know we've been in the book of Acts. We are going to finish up chapter 15 today and move into chapter 16. If you're using one of those blue Bibles in the back, we are on page uh, 539 in those Bibles. And if you're new to the Scriptures, um, Acts is the book that tells us what happened after Jesus returned to heaven for the next 30 or so years. So it covers a span of about three decades. Uh, This morning, we will uh, begin together what is typically referred to as Paul's second missionary journey. If the first one was successful, the one we've just finished talking about, then the second one is just out of this world. Paul and his team in this second trip that lasted about three years, a little over three years, went to major cities that we still would have heard of today, like Athens and Corinth and Ephesus. And this is the trip when he started churches in those famous cities. This runs from chapter, end of chapter 15 all the way to 18, verse 22. And there's so much that we can learn today about our own circumstances based on what happened on this trip so long ago. Today in the last paragraph of chapter 15 and the first paragraph of chapter 16, we reach, um, oddly enough, two rather complicated texts. Each are confusing in their own way. And yet these two complex passages actually work together to present one simple idea. So hopefully we'll have time to get to both of them. We'll see how verbose I am on the first. Um, Acts 15, 36, would you follow along with me in your Bible? And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The impetus for the second missionary journey was Paul's desire to take Barnabas and return to all the churches they had started on their first trip together. Some time had passed, and it, it was wise to circle back around and to see how everybody was doing and to strengthen them in the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, churches need bolstering. Both this paragraph and the next end by saying that the churches were strengthened. A church on mill, we need strengthening, don't we? The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed some of our vulnerabilities as a congregation. It's uncovered areas where we still need to grow closer and more obedient to the Lord. And that's probably true of all of us personally. When, 
when we're squeezed, what, what's in there comes out. And not everything that's in there is yet sanctified. So how will we, as a faith family, how will we be strengthened? Well, it's in the same way that they were strengthened in these two paragraphs. We'll be strengthened through the hearing and heeding of godly gospel teaching and preaching. So whether you're, whether you're here in person or coming online due to being among the physically vulnerable, we need to be careful not to get complacent and lazy spiritually. This would be an easy time to do so, right? Incredibly easy time. I want to encourage you to give yourself fully to the work that God is doing here among us, that, that you might be strengthened and thereby that we might be strengthened together. In a few weeks, we'll be starting on Wednesday nights something new we're going to call Psalms and Prayers. In the last Wednesday night of the month, we'll be meeting here uh, in this room and then every week subsequent to that, and we'll simply spend 30 minutes looking at a psalm together and then 30 minutes together praying. We hope that will be one way the Lord will strengthen us. We've put out a ton of great content on the Jesus is Better side of our webpage. I encourage you to look at it, to look at articles that fellow brothers and sisters have written, to watch videos, to uh, read the prayers, to spend time considering the truths there. And of all the times that we ought to understand the necessity of us discipling each other, one-on-one, one-on-two, opening the Word, encouraging each other, sharing what's going on in our lives, praying together. This is certainly the time to be doing that. If we don't give ourselves to these things, then as it's become clear that this pandemic is not going away anytime soon, I am concerned that we will find some of us wandering away from the church. And if one wanders away from the church long enough, then you will wander away from the Lord. May God protect us all from that. Amen? That could happen to any one of us. And may the Lord strengthen us and strengthen other churches through us. Now, this desire to encourage the young churches in the faith is what prompted Paul to suggest to Barnabas that they pack their bags and they head out again. It seems clear in the text that Barnabas quickly agreed. There was no question there. But then a rather surprising complication developed. Did you notice it? Um, on, their, on their first trip together, Paul and Barnabas had recruited a young man named John Mark. John Mark, we know from Colossians chapter 4, was Barnabas's cousin. And John Mark agreed to travel with them as they preached the gospel, plant churches, discipled new Christians, raised up elders. But apparently at a particular fork in the road, you can read about this in the middle of chapter 13 if you're interested, at a particular fork in the road where uh, they were going to go one way to continue the journey, John Mark instead went the other way. He, he chose to go home while Barnabas and Paul forged ahead. Now, Acts 13 does not say why John Mark made that decision. It just says that he did it. 
But it's clear in Acts 15 that Paul regarded that departure as a serious defection. He regarded it as John Mark not fulfilling a commitment that he made. He seems to think it was a liability to the team. Barnabas wanted now, on this second trip, to give him another chance, but Paul wouldn't hear of it. Now, we're not given all the details or content around their conversation, but we are told, if you look in verse 39, that there was a sharp disagreement. That's Bible speak for they nearly went to blows. They had a fight. Almost certainly, Barnabas wanted to give John Mark a second chance. And Paul believed that so critical was example setting and leadership that John Mark had blown it and he couldn't be trusted. Each of these spiritual giants dug in their heels and refused to budge. Now remember who these guys were. Barnabas has come up a whole bunch of times in Acts thus far. He discipled Paul. And Paul is quickly becoming, by this point in Acts, the greatest missionary the church would ever produce. I mean, these guys were tight. Everywhere he went, Barnabas, people were bolstered, boosted, built up. And Paul would go on to write the most books of anybody in our New Testament. These men had skin in the game. They'd spent years together. They had a, a unified mission strategy. When we go into a city, here's what we do. It seemed like it'd be a tremendous time for another tremendous trip, but they couldn't agree on Mark. And their disagreement was deep enough that they couldn't make the trip together. So they parted ways. Now, who was right? That's what we want to know, isn't it? Who was right? Was Paul right for holding the line and expecting the bar for missionary leadership to be high? Perhaps his, his rebuke, because John Mark knew this was happening, perhaps his rebuke helped John Mark grow? Or was Barnabas right for showing grace and mercy and desiring to help his young cousin get another shot? Maybe that second chance is exactly what John Mark needed. Maybe he'd already learned what he needed to learn. If we took a poll of the members in the room this morning and asked each of us, which one was right, Paul or Barnabas? My guess is some of us would say Paul and some of us would say Barnabas. And then the funny part of that would be our answers would be very much tied to our personalities. Some of us are more like Paul and some of us are more like Barnabas. And so we see life through those lenses. It's no misstep that rugged Paul said no. And it's no misstep that encouraging Barnabas said 
Yes. Now, if you look closely in this paragraph, you'll see Acts doesn't even attempt to answer our question. It doesn't tell us. It describes the situation, but gives absolutely no evaluation of Barnabas and Paul's respective positions. So who was right? I don't know. Maybe both. What Acts does tell us is that under the kind providence of God, this serious difference of opinion actually ended up producing two missionary journeys instead of one. Barnabas took Mark and headed out to strengthen the churches in Cyprus, where there would not have been another trip, and Paul recruited Silas, and they departed for Syria and Cilicia. So, this unresolved dispute doubled the mission. Isn't that just the kind of thing God would do? Now, church, if Paul and Barnabas had significant disagreements, guess who else will? We will. We will. It seems to me that many of us have some important lessons to learn in that regard. I don't think we're particularly good at this. A few of us are prone to fight about lots of things, particularly when we're behind a screen. Maybe you are one that really enjoys debate and dispute, and it's, it's not hard for you. You, you, you um, are energized by it, you freaks. <laughs> now, on the other hand, a few of us are prone to run if there's any kind of disagreement at all. We automatically assume it's bad if the temperature in the room rises just a little bit. Maybe you're one that gets your feelings hurt easily. And so you find yourself jumping from group to group to group to group. But I don't think those extremes represent the majority of us. There's a few on, the, on both sides. But the majority of us are somewhere in the middle. I imagine the majority of us would say, we don't like fighting, we try to avoid it, we like to keep the peace. But what ought we to do when there is conflict in the church? When, when this happens, and it will, when that happens, what should we do? Well, if there's sin involved in the conflict, then the Scripture is very, very clear. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, addresses what to do. He said, on the one hand, if you're one, this is from Matthew 6, if you're taking notes, if you're one who has harmed another and you become aware of it, then you should drop everything and go talk to the person. Go make your apology. Go set it right. Even if you don't think that the issue should have been that big a deal. Your responsibility is to set down your own stuff and to go care for your brother or sister. 
Now, it also, Jesus also tells us in Matthew 18, if you're the one who's been sinned against, and if it's not something minor that you should just overlook, then you, you in that case, should go to that person. You should go and talk with them, not with a baseball bat, but go sit and share with the hopes of seeing reconciliation. So significant is the resolution of these kinds of issues when they're sin that God's given us a whole process to use if it breaks down. Theologians call that process church discipline. and It's outlined in Matthew 18. But what about those situations where the disagreement isn't over sin? What about the cases where it's a legitimate difference of opinion? What, what should we do when brothers and sisters have significant disagreement and there doesn't seem to be a clear right and wrong, sin and not sin? What do we do then? Well, that's more difficult, isn't it? That's the situation we have here in Acts 15. There is no indication that either Paul or Barnabas was in sin. The text simply doesn't tell us one of them was right and the other was wrong. It seems they saw the situation through different eyes, with different priorities, standing on different principles. So what do we do then? Well, most of the disagreements I have experienced over the course of life in churches, when it reaches that point, it's often something that should never have reached that point. It's over something petty, something little, some personal preference kind of issue. In that case, grow up. Set aside the personal preference. You want to sing five songs instead of three. Come on. Right? It's, it's, it's usually that kind of stuff. But let's just assume all of us are too mature for those kinds of idiotic, petty disagreements. Right? Let's just assume if we ever actually get to loggerheads and it's not sin or not sin, it's amoral. Let's assume if we ever get there that it's an actual matter that matters, like Paul and Barnabas. Okay, you with me? Then what do you do? Well, friends, if there's an issue you struggle with and can't get on board with, then you ought to talk it out. You ought to get with the respective people and prayerfully, humbly share and listen. I really believe most things can be resolved with humility, conversation, and mature flexibility. Most things. Most disagreements in a church can be resolved if we act like Christ. But, not everything. Not everything can get sorted out in the short term. It might be that you reach this point and neither you nor the other person involved is in sin. And if you reach that point, 
and you don't get there very often. These are probably one, two, three times in your lifetime kind of issues. If you ever reach that point, then it is not sin to go two separate ways. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. Now think of this on a corporate church level, okay, not an individual relational level. If you can't get on board with a church's nuanced understanding of gender, or if you feel you can't affirm a membership commitment for some principled reason, or if there's an elder that you just can't submit to, then you do nothing to grow up in Christ or to strengthen that church just to sit in that disagreement for years and years and years and years. That kind of low-grade stewing of the pot doesn't help anybody. If it's truly a matter of principle, and it really matters, then take John Mark and go to Cyprus. That's not sin. Go find a church you can be fully on board with. Get over the issue. And if you go, God is big enough and kind enough to strengthen and bolster the mission, to double it. God's good for that. I think what the American church needs is not Christians with fewer convictions, but more. It, it's better, if I put it really practically, it's better that in Tempe, Arizona, there's a Presbyterian church down the street where they baptize babies than it is for there to be a whole group of people who have a conviction that they simply abdicate and another church that simply abdicates. It's better that if there's a serious disagreement and it can't be sorted out, then both groups stick with their conviction. Then it is for neither one to care, to have weak theology, or to simply stay and pretend. That doesn't actually help anything. Now, I think Paul and Barnabas' disagreement and the fact that it reached that point is sad. I'm not saying we ought to feel happy about it. I mean, these guys were so tight. And yet, do you see that their commitment to reach the nations for Christ, as best they understood it at the time, was big enough that they were willing to stomach a principled disagreement. I think today we would see that as bad, and I would ask you to reconsider that. I don't think that's bad at all. I think it's right. And the American church would be stronger if people made those kinds of decisions. To say that either were in sin is simply not true. Sometimes there are disagreements that are big enough they won't be immediately resolved. And after trying, 
then let's go with Jesus and his church in different directions, committing ourselves not to speak evil of the other and simply move on. Now, I frame all of this in this light, not because there's some big problem in Churchill Mill, but because that's what the scriptures themselves are doing. In fact, if we look ahead from Acts 15 on through the rest of the Bible, then what we find is that this was not a permanent fracturing of Paul and Barnabas's relationship, nor was it the end of interaction between Paul and John Mark. Here in Acts 15, the issue seems irreconcilable, doesn't it? I mean, it just seems like... <laughs> However, they went their separate ways, but it didn't permanently ruin the relationship. How do we know that? Well, in 1 Corinthians, there's a place where Paul uses Barnabas as an example of a good missionary. He didn't write 1 Corinthians until well after this event. So while he disagreed with him on a particular issue, he didn't write him off. He didn't call him a twit and say, I'm done with you and I think you're headed to hell because you disagree with me about John Mark. No, they went their different ways, but they still spoke well of each other. Now, how about John Mark? Well, if we fast forward beyond the second missionary journey, all the way to the very last few days of Paul's life, Paul sat in prison in Rome, and he wrote a letter to his spiritual protege, a man named Timothy, who we'll talk about in a minute. In the last letter he wrote before his death, 2 Timothy, we learned something fascinating about how he now felt at that point about John Mark. It'll be here on the screens. This is 2 Timothy 4, 9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatians, Titus, to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Same Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. The Mark mentioned in verse 11 is the same Mark, John Mark, that Paul regarded in Acts 15 as unfit for mission. But here, all these years later, as the sun is setting on Paul's life and he knows it, who does he want brought to him to sit with him, to encourage him, to stick by his side? Well, he longed to be with Mark. Maybe Paul came to see his perspective was short-sighted. Maybe John Mark had proved himself faithful because he was rebuked by Paul. Maybe Paul just got a bit softer in his old age. We don't know. But I don't think it really matters. Because what this does show us is that even if there is significant, painful, tearful, sad 
parting of ways, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the end of the story. While most disagreements are minor and should be overlooked or not argued to a breaking point, sometimes Christians will have principled disagreements. And because our commitment to Christ is first, then that may mean we need to go separate ways. But what Acts emphasizes is, is simply this. Even if that happens, God can use that to double the mission. And God may in the future bring the two back together. May that inform how we treat each other. Now, if that first paragraph seemed a little complicated, the second is far more. In the second paragraph, we will learn not about a sharp disagreement, but about a sharp knife. You will be amused by that in a moment. Acts 16. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of the brothers by Lystra in Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened and they increased in number daily. Now, to the astute hearer, this passage is a real head-scratcher, isn't it? I mean, didn't we just have Acts 15? Last time I checked, yep, Acts 15 is in the Bible. Do you remember last week, if you were with us? Last week, we talked about one of the most important, significant texts in the entire Bible. In Acts 15, the apostles and elders got together to discuss how is it that someone is saved? What must you do to be in the kingdom of God and captured among the people of God? And their decision was, well, it's by grace and grace alone. You put your faith and trust in Christ, and that makes you part of the big family of God. You need not be Jewish in order to be Christian. You don't have to follow the Old Testament law. It's been fulfilled in Christ. Circumcision is not necessary. Now, the sign of being a part of the people of God in the Old Testament was circumcision. So, if you're new to all this and you're wondering why in the world is an adult mixed audience talking about that, well, if you start in your Bible, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 17, then you'll see that from that point on, circumcision was required among Israelite boys. And each time there was a circumcision, I mean, it, it, I remember as a teenager thinking, 
It's like God just thought, I want to come up with the most ridiculous thing to ask people to do. And he's just kind of cruel, up in heaven laughing. I mean, doesn't it seem like that? But here was the promise, the promise given to Abraham. Through your seed, the whole world will be blessed. So that's why circumcision. When a parent took their son on his eighth day and circumcised him, they were saying, we believe one is going to come through our seed, which is connected back to Abraham, and that through him, the whole world will be blessed. It's actually a rather beautiful picture. Now, though after Jesus, he's the one who that was always pointing forward to. After Jesus has come, the sign's no longer needed. It has fulfilled its purpose. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom. He's saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, incorporating them into the new family of God. The Old Testament sign is no longer required. And so as Paul knew and argued in Acts 15, and as Paul knew and had written about in Galatians, the purity of the gospel is the most important thing. We could go to ultimate blows over that. The message of grace is sufficient to save apart from any attempt to observe the law. Gentiles need not become Jews. Just turn from sin and trust in Jesus. That's it. That's Acts chapter 15. But here, like, we don't even have a chapter of buffer to forget. 15, 16. 16. Paul recruits a young man to join him on this missionary journey. And what's the first thing Paul does with him? Takes him and has him circumcised. Can you imagine what Timothy must have thought? I didn't know I was signing up for that. Doesn't it feel like a total contradiction? It certainly reads that way on the surface. But if you look closely at verse 4, you'll see that Paul, Silas, and the newly circumcised Timothy went to all the churches Paul had started and strengthened them. And what did they do? Well, they encouraged all those churches in the decisions that had been reached. What were those decisions? You don't have to be circumcised. So can you imagine Timothy sitting in the back, <laughs> nursing his wound, and asking, why in the world did I have to do that then? No, I think Timothy understood. I think he got it. The question is on our end. Believing uncircumcised Gentiles are full church members. They're God's people. They're not second-class citizens. That's the message they were telling these churches. And the churches were rejoicing and growing in that. But what's up with Timothy? Well, here's the issue. While circumcision is not required for salvation, evangelism demands a willingness to lay down our freedoms. 
Christians must be willing to become all things to all people in order that God might win some. Even something as personal as that. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Though I am free of all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself not under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, not, not meaning physically weak, to those whose consciences are weak, and they're all tied up in all these scruples, scruples that God no longer expects. But to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them its blessings. That's what's happening in Acts 16. You see, because Timothy was broadly known in the cities Paul would be traveling to, and because Part of the mission was to continue to witness to unbelieving Jews. Unbelieving Jews who still believed circumcision was required. And since everybody knew that Timothy was half Greek and half Jewish, then Timothy's lack of circumcision would be an unnecessary stumbling block to effective evangelism. Therefore, while circumcision was no longer required, Paul was quite happy as a discipler to call on Timothy to give up that freedom. Church, when the truth of the gospel is not at stake, our responsibility is to seek to share the gospel with unbelievers with such passion that we would give up any and every freedom, that even just one would come to trust Jesus Christ. Now, that's never to be used as an excuse to sin. You see, Timothy wasn't sinning by being circumcised. He knew, I'm already in. I don't have to do this. God's already accepted me. But he identified with the unbelieving Jews in order that they might come to see and trust and savor the grace of Christ. He accommodated himself to their scruples, even though he didn't have to, because that's what the gospel calls us to. Now, can you think of somebody who gave up far more than a bit of foreskin? Jesus. Jesus left the glories of heaven for the moral filth of earth. He gave up the freedom of the perfection of heaven in order ultimately to take on your guilt. Jesus gave up that. We can give up whatever is asked of us. Now, do you see how these texts work together? 
In the first, a sharp disagreement doubled the mission. In the second, a sharp knife prepared the team to advance the mission. These two texts that don't seem like they go together very well at all actually lock in beautifully. You see, not even conflict among missionaries nor cultural scruples can stop the mission of the church. Jesus will be worshipped and enjoyed among every tribe, tongue, and nation. May that be what is most important to us. And may the Lord help us as we try to navigate the difficult waters of when we need to disagree and when we need to submit to each other and when, if ever, we need to leave and what freedoms we need to give up. All of that requires the wisdom of the Spirit and the kindness of brothers and sisters one to another. But what's unacceptable is that we not care, that we be indifferent to the mission. May our Lord help us in that way. Father, we thank you that your scripture teaches us everything we need to know for life and godliness. We thank you for what Jesus gave up. We pray that by your spirit we would be fueled to give up whatever you would ask of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.